This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? I'm doing well. How's it going, Ryan? It's pretty good. How about you, Nate? How you doing? I'm doing good as well. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. All right, welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend, where we try to talk about Ruby, but oftentimes talk more about the blend. What's on the uh, docket for today? Why don't you go first, uh, Andrew, since you brought up uh, Ruby 2.4. Yeah, I, I saw the other day that Ruby 2.4 is no longer supported, but I believe it's still, like they should still backport security fixes, right? Is that, I think that's my understanding of it, yeah, but it's no longer officially supported. So, so there you have it, folks. Get off of Ruby 2.4 and upgrade. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of people on Ruby 2.4. Because I saw a someone posted a picture of what they believe to be a comprehensive look at like who's running, you know, on what Ruby version. And it looks like a lot of people are still on Ruby 2.4, but seeing that Ruby 2.5 was the most popular at this time. I'll try to see if I can dig up that image, but I'm not really sure where I saw it. Yeah, I remember seeing that as well. I think it was on Twitter or something. But it did look like the vast majority of folks are on 2.5, which is a little bit surprising to me. I thought uh, there would be more on 2.6. It was like 5% on 2.6. Yeah, but if you're on 2.4, it's time to upgrade. I'm not, I don't remember any big differences. I can't really remember a reason why you wouldn't want to just upgrade to 2.5. I don't remember there being any changes that had to be made. Laziness. Well, yeah, that, that's fair. Or just like apps that are like just running and people aren't really, you know, keeping them up to date or they kind of just run. Right. Like I, there's, uh, I have one client that has an app that just kind of runs and they reach out to me a handful of times a year to make changes. And I was thinking, hmm, I wonder what version of Ruby that app is on because I'm pretty sure I haven't updated it anytime recently. So it sounds like you might have had some fun DevOps today and maybe yesterday, Ron. Oh, yeah. Tons of fun. So apparently DigitalOcean is having some issues in their three New York data centers. And based on their status page a little while ago, two in the two in California and their London data center. And I found that out while trying to make some live changes for a client that was on the phone. And me and my business partner were saying, yeah, oh yeah, the the changes, they're live. They're live right now. And he's like, no, they're not. And I'm like, yeah, they are. I, I, I made the changes. I'm looking at them. And yeah, so that's when I realized, okay, something is happening. And it was a digital ocean outage. So that was fun. I was going to say that seems very, very typical for demos, especially live demos or sales calls. Those types of uh, outages or, or problems typically happen. I get the most inopportune moments. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, yeah, I've never had, I mean, I've been a part of organizations that have had production outages, obviously, right? But when never been in the position where 
like you're standing right in front of or virtually standing in our case, you know, in front of the, the customer and just having it tank like that. That's like, it's like a live coding at a conference just didn't go well. Was this a, a WordPress app or what, yeah. what was it? Yes, it, it was a WordPress, uh, a WordPress site, which, yeah, like I, like, I, I guess, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what the issue was, but it updated and I could see the updates and the client couldn't. So I'm sure it was like the data center, but I've had the same experience with WordPress, but it was like a caching issue and it was super super annoying because I tried everything I could possibly think of to get like this image updated, but turns out it was actually just cached. And I was apps. I was, I was furious when I figured that out. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that was it because I, when I, when the client was saying that they're, they were having the issues, I opened up the site on every other browser besides the one that I made it on. And opened up private windows and everything, but the one that I made it on was not showing the updates. So I don't know. I feel like they actually didn't even hit the server. <laughs> I was just, I just had the local, the updates local uh, in my browser. That is frustrating. It's so, yeah, it's always something whenever you're doing that. And that's, ah, I don't envy that. That's like when you try to push like a major deploy. Sometimes when we do like a major deploy at CodeFund, like we'll all get on a call to just kind of watch it. And, you know, just in case like something goes wrong, we have our social media guy there who can handle the fallout. And then Nate and I and Eric are all on it just in case, you know, we need to sort through something with the DNS or whatever. And yeah, for some reason, whenever we're all there, something inevitably goes wrong. (laughs) So it's good that everyone's on deck. Yeah, sometimes that happens even when it's not a deploy, right? You'll get a report back uh, from a sales call or something that something's not quite working. No deploy has happened over the last, you know, few days or something. So you drop in and start looking around. Nothing's changed. Trying to figure it, figure it out. And ultimately, you look at, uh, we're on Heroku, so you'll look at Heroku stats. They, they're reporting everything fine. And then eventually, through the chain of, of layered services, you find out it's like some issue with S3 or something. That's, that finally has rippled up and everybody is now reporting an outage on. Right. Yeah, although one time Nate and I were joking around about people on Twitter who who are very anti-deploy on Friday and we were very gung-ho. We were like, oh no, we're not afraid to deploy on Friday. And then we deployed on Friday and something almost went terribly wrong. And I think Heroku started having issues right when we hit promote. So our promotion to production was just spinning definitely. And we had like a very big background job that was going to kick off soon. And I think it resolved right before that job kicked off. And we kind of just looked at each other and were like, all right, no more making, no more making fun of people. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I like you guys. I like you guys a lot, but I'm sorry. If you decide to deploy on a Friday, you deserve whatever you get. It was like late Friday too. Like we weren't even scared. Wow. Yeah. We're scared now. And rightfully so. Oh. Yeah. There's should, things you like, can do to mitigate it, but. Like not or, doing it? Well, well, yeah, that's part one. I think the, like, the, the argument for Friday deploys is that you, you want to take all the friction and fear out of your deployments, right? And so if you have a dev culture that 
has a high degree of confidence in shipping and rolling back or, you know, making a bug fix quickly and rolling that out on top of the last deploy. That's, that's really the goal. It's not so much Friday deploys. It's just get the friction and fear out of your deployment pipeline. Yeah. I ain't scared, but I'm a little more cautious now (laughs) because before then I was never scared. I had never, ever had an issue happen on a Friday deploy. So I made the classic gambler's fallacy. I was like, Oh, it's never happened yet, but it almost got us. Yeah, and the point there is it was something out of our control, right? We we had right. we were very confident in the deploy, but when the infrastructure we're sitting on top of has issues, that could have that could have been a, a major disaster for us. Right. So lesson learned, it's not just about your confidence in the deploy, but your confidence in the things you can't control. Yeah. Yep. That's why ever since then, if it's I mean, if it's early Friday, like before lunch, like I'll still deploy. I, like, I'm not worried about that. But if it's like later, if it gets towards like the end of the day and I'm thinking about, oh, I, I need to go ahead and deploy this. I'm like, nah, I'm just going to just going to wait just yeah, in it's, case. It's 7 p.m. I just finished up uh, yeah. my last ticket. Let me go ahead and push to prod. Yeah. yeah the, the other danger there is if you don't have your monitoring in place and the alerts and infrastructure to be aware of problems that got introduced because you could introduce something that that just has some small side effect. But if you don't have monitoring around that, you're not going to know. And then you're going to go all weekend. Nobody's paying attention. Like I've even had production systems do something similar to that. And it ran for a month before somebody noticed that there was a problem. So I guess the other lesson is make sure you've got your the, the appropriate monitoring in place so that you know when things are going sideways. If it took a month to notice, was it really a problem though? In this case, it was. I'm thinking of a couple of companies back, but yeah, it, it was a it was definitely a problem. But it was something that uh, wasn't really an ops issue. It was just like some numbers internal to the the database that affected how people were being billed and that sort of thing. And and so nobody really noticed until you know the bills started going out and customers were complaining and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, it, but we could have caught it much sooner, but we just didn't have anything kind of monitoring that to see that, that the numbers weren't going you know, off the charts or haywire. Right. So I'm kind of interested to take the conversation towards uh, template in- engines with Ruby and Rails and view component and things like that, because I know Andrew is moving code fund over to view component from, from GitHub and at least the, the the library that GitHub is creating and using. And our, we noticed that the ERB was starting to look a little ugly and he wanted to move it into something that looked a little bit more elegant. And I think it was slim that you were, you were experimenting with. Is that right, Andrew? Yeah. I guess the preface of this conversation is that Eric is an enabler <laughs> because I would never have, I wouldn't have done it because, I mean, we've had conversations on this show about it. We've had conversations on Remote Ruby. I mean, Nate and I have had internal conversations about it. And as much as I like to joke around that, like, yeah, I want to move to Hamler Slim, it's it's not something I'm currently thinking or even wanting to do. And I had a very large PR that moved a lot of things to view component. I think it was 70, 70 view files. And Eric is coding a lot more now and he code reviewed it and he's like, you know, this would look really, it looks, it would be much more readable if we move to something like Hamel or Slim. 
Yeah, and now I think that was spawned by looking at some of the view component uh, ERB stuff that that wasn't rendering anything that was recognizable HTML, right? It was all view component renders that were happening inside of an ERB template and didn't look anything like HTML, but it looked very much like ERB with a bunch of method calls sprinkled everywhere. And so, yeah, it was objectively very ugly. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it was ugly. And Eric was right. It would look a lot better in Slim or Hamel. And it did look a lot better in Slim or Hamel when we looked at it. I always like bring up Hamel just because that's what I've used. But when Eric and I hopped on a call to like actually talk about it, I was I was planning to do Slim because I've heard I've heard it's faster, although I've also heard arguments that that is not really potentially the case, but the overwhelming consensus is that Slim is faster. I've heard better things about, you know, multi-line things in Slim and things like that. So my plan was to move to Slim just because I've I've heard better things about it. And Eric and I, we gave it a try. We looked at it and we ran a we used some gem and I think we tried more than one, but we tried to run some commands to like auto move everything over to slim and it was just not going to do it one-to-one. Like they, it created issues, not, not in all of them, not in all the views, but in enough that I was like, okay, we would have to go view by view or file by file to make sure that it didn't screw anything up. If we ran this auto formatter and I've never used slim, so I wasn't super confident about the syntax anyway. And this was kind of just a spur of the moment thing. But when I realized that it wasn't going to convert everything over one to one, I had this over like a wave of laziness hit me like out of the blue, just smacked me. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I, I, I feel like I go through all the view files and code fun like every, every few months. And I'm just like, I don't I don't want to go through every view file and convert this all over. I'm like, that just sounds terrible. I guess the other, the other option there would have been to, to kind of live with a foot in both worlds, right? To say, well, we'll we have to manually convert it and let's just move the ugliest files over first. And the, but then you've got one foot in the slim world, one foot in ERB and another foot with view component. And that's not a great place to be either because in reality we probably would it would take a long time to carry it over the finish line. And we'd probably want to go in another direction again before we even finish that effort. Yeah. And I, I was not willing to live in both worlds. I'm a very all or nothing person. Like this is, call it what you will. This is a personality quirk or whatever, but I, I am very all or nothing. And I was not willing to live in both worlds at the same time. I didn't, the, the payoff of, you know, having some views look a little prettier versus the, negative of now you have two template rendering systems. I was like, I just don't want to do that. And I didn't want to do the work to move it over. And I knew I would be the one doing it. So I, I pulled the plug on that. And at the end, Eric was like, well, at least we know now that this isn't something we want to do. And when he said that, I kind of just sat back and looked at him for a minute. I was like, are you trying to teach me a lesson? Like, I was like, is this a lesson that you're trying to teach me? I was like, is Nate like standing behind you? Like you got punk son. I was I don't know. But at that moment I was like, no, I don't want to do this. Even though I, I joke about wanting to do it a lot, but I was like, no, I, I don't want to do this. 
Eric was just giving you the rope, just giving you yeah. more and more slack, seeing what you were going to do. Yeah. With it. Uh, yeah. The, and actually your funny. decision on that has, has like boosted my confidence in like in your decision-making skills and architecture, architectural guidance over the project immensely. And it, it, I didn't, I, I have nothing to do with experimenting with slim. I was just observing from, from a distance, but I was like, Oh, that was a hundred percent the right decision. So the lesson is that sometimes it's more impressive to be lazy. No, the yeah. lesson here is that I am, I am, I am quickly becoming, I'm slowly but surely increasing in skills. <laughs> no, I, it, I've, the entire time we were trying to experiment, I was like, damn it, Nate was right. Nate was right. I was like, I can't believe this. I was like, he was right. He told me and I didn't believe him, but he was right. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the rails way, the Nate way, you know, yeah. you, you'll, you'll do good as long as you follow the Nate way. It's when you start fighting against the Nate way that you, you run into problems. There, there is no Nate way. It's just uh, the rails way. Yeah. And it was funny that I ended up being on the side of like when he first brought it up, when Eric first brought up moving, I was like, I don't know. I feel like we've hashed this out a lot and that we've all kind of agreed that ERB is the way to go. I was like, regardless of how we may feel about it. And then I ended up being the one defending ERB and the end and being like, well, you know, this discourages new contributors and, Oh, I'm too lazy to go and fix all this and this and that. And I was just like, yeah, it, I don't want to do this. Slim is not the way. You have no idea how happy it makes me to hear you talk like that. <laughs> it took uh, it took six months, but here I am. I have I've become little Nate. It's it's a milestone actually when you can resist the the new shiny or at least the newer shiny. Yeah, it did look better. I will say that it one hundred percent syntactically because Eric's point that he was making was that I use ERB because it's more readable. He's like, but you've created this massive thing that he's like, it's just, there's no HTML in these views. Suddenly it's not more readable with ERB, which is true. It's not more readable. It would look better, but the payoff, I was not willing to, I was not willing to handle the payoff or the cost. I was not willing to pay the cost to do it. Yeah, because the reward just wasn't there. I mean, the upside exists, but it's not its not a worthy right. trade-off. Yeah. Right. And the one thing that I was trying to hold out for was I was like, okay, maybe we can finally get some really good linting on the views. Because like I've said before, I will lint anything that moves. And I was like, Slim has a good linter. I was like, my if the linter is as good as I think it is, then I'm... I'm maybe willing to do the work, but the linter wouldn't autocorrect. And I understand and I read some threads about why it wouldn't do it, but that pretty much shot the entire thing out of the water. And I was like, I'm not, no, I'm not doing this if it won't autocorrect. Ron, what, what templates are you guys using at work? ERB for life. Yeah, there you go. I, for some reason, I thought you were on Hamel. At the, my previous job, we were using Hamel with Angular 1X. But we we had stopped using it there too because we moved everything over to React. Well, I can say the main thing that the converter choked on, and this may just be like, okay, 
they choked on it for a reason. And the reason may or may not be just an indication of things that we're doing that may or may not be totally kosher, but it was choking. It choked on every time we had interpolated ERB into a tag. So you had an imp, like a, just a plain input tag in HTML. And then maybe for the, I don't know, the classes or something on it, we had interpolated ERB. That's it choked on all of that. And we do that in a lot of places. Yeah, that's a pretty big thing to choke on. Yeah. So I was like, I, I can't. I was like, I don't have the patience to do this. I was like, I already just updated 70 files to move like everything over to view component. I was like, I, 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 don't, I don't have the patience to do this with Slim. And I was like, I don't see the rewards not there. The time it would take, because my point that I was making to Eric, I was like, I, this is going to take too long. I was like, this may take like several days. It's going to take at least a day. And I was like, I'm not sure I'm willing to spend a day on this. But his point was like, a day is not much if you like, if we think about like the reward. And I was like, not sure the reward is really there at the end of the day. So, yeah. Yeah. And for the record, was I, was, I was completely willing to go in that direction too, as, as I was watching from the sidelines. Well, that's that's funny because the first thing that Eric said, he's like, we should move to ERB or Ham or Slimmer Hamble. And I was like, uh, Nate might kill me. <laughs> yeah, I saw that comment in Slack, but I was I really was like after at least on some of the examples, like the side by side, Slim was 100 uh, percent prettier. I mean, it looked it looked nicer. It was more readable, those sorts of things. But I agree with you over over the full project. The payoff just wasn't there. Yeah. And on the pages where it was just rendering, you know, Ruby basically with helpers or the view component. Yeah, it looked a lot better. But we have some gnarly views that are not using either of those things. And I thought about those views and I was like, no, I don't want to do this. I mean, the num- one of the number one things Nate's been hammering into my mind is over the, I think I've been at CodeFund for a, a little over six months. He's like, you need to be more lazy. And I was thinking, I was like, yeah, I, I am too lazy to do this. Nate, Nate has made me lazier in the code. And his number one comment, Bron, just so you know, his number one comment when I showed him the side-by-side was, you did all this work, you know, to like, I don't remember his exact word. He's like, you did all this stuff. He's like, but you're still using all these parentheses because I refuse, I refuse to not use parentheses. Mark my words, one day you will drop the parens from some of your method calls. <laughs> Maybe, but not, not, not today. Wait a minute, why? Because, like, because it's more readable. I can't think of a great, like, I, okay, I can think of a great example off the top of my head, actually. We have a method in a job, and in this method, there are just two words, or, which are actually calling other methods. But what I didn't realize until far into like working on this file is that because he'd left, he'd left the parentheses off and one method was actually taking the other method as a like parameter value. And I didn't realize that because it was just like, you know, word, 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 space, word, foo space, bar. And I didn't realize that foo was actually taking bar as a parameter and yeah, it's less readable. It is less readable, especially in these ER in ERB when you have like these massive lines that are, you know, you've got your 
all your, your placeholder and you got your ID and your classes, and then you got your data attributes and yada, yada, yada. Like the parentheses are so helpful for readability. I, I guess it's just a matter of opinion. I don't know. That's, that's I, Ron's way of saying, I don't, you, you didn't sell me. <laughs> I don't that's know. Fair. Readable, readable is, is subjective, right? Cause I, I read English and probably the, uh, the less parentheses, the better. So, and that's one of the things I like about Ruby because I mean, you can get it to read like English if you really want to, if you drop the parentheses, that is. I will not, I don't use parentheses as much as I used to, but there are some cases where I'm like, no, I'm going to, especially in the views, I'm not dropping the parens in the views. I refuse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's important to use them when it's ambiguous, right? I mean, but your linters will typically catch that or your code formatters like standard, right? But so if it is ambiguous, they're they're required. But I don't know if I buy the the readability. It right. is more readable. I'm telling it, you. Okay, let me. It's more readable for a junior. And as I, much I will as, agree. I'll buy that one. Yeah. There you go. As much as people like to toss different titles at me, like I still consider myself largely to be junior, and it is much more readable to me to have the parens. Yeah. So I yeah, for me. On the parens, like if you go look at some open source libraries maintained by some of the most prominent Rubyists out there, even their uh, method declarations don't use parens, even if they accept arguments to those methods. And that that's a line that I typically don't cross myself. Right. See, and I was going to say, I'm, I guess I'm kind of the opposite of what you were saying, Andrew, because most of the time in the view, I will leave the parentheses off even if I'm feeling like I need parentheses in my, you know, my regular Ruby code. And yeah, to, in my method definitions, I, uh, it's just weird to me to have arguments to a method and not surrounded by uh, parentheses. So that is one place where I, I need them. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this would, it would be less of a problem if we had better formatters for ERB or, I mean, there's HTML formatters, but if there are better ERB formatters, and there's really only one that I know of, which is a library by, well, it was forked by Shopify. It's called ERB Lint. It will auto format some ERB, but I wish it would do it more. And one thing I have started doing, which is a side note, but I was talking to a buddy who works at Podia, and we were arguing about the way I had laid out this method in the view. and he was like, I would lay it out like this. And I was like, you're crazy. I was like, why would you lay it out like that? And we were arguing back and forth about it. And he's like, well, RuboCop would format it like this if it was just Ruby. And I was like, okay, that's a really good point. So I took the method. And one thing, and this is something I've continued to do. I'll take the method that I'm writing in ERB and I will like strip out the ERB tags. And so it's just Ruby and see how standard will format it. And then that's what I'll do on the front end. But it, it doesn't work for everything. but I don't know. I, I'm very, I've gone back and forth a lot about if you have a ton of things that you're trying to tack on to an HTML element, like how do you best format that for readability? And so some like putting it into Ruby and if, it, if it's like something you can just like one-to-one strip the ERB tags and put in Ruby and see what it will do. Like that's one thing, but a lot of the times you can't do that, but that is one trick that I have learned since that argument with Andrew Famera. And I guess the other, the other 
thing of note there is on on having it be. I mean, it's a pretty compelling argument to say that it's more readable for for a junior or somebody new to Ruby. But that probably also hinges on what language or other things they may be familiar with. Like what what assumptions or patterns are they coming to Ruby or ERB with uh, to begin with, right? But I, I do agree that it, it can look very DSL-like and maybe not completely obvious that it's a method call with an uh, argument being passed in some cases to someone who's not uh, intimately familiar with Ruby. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I I knew a developer that did primarily PHP and had to do some Ruby a small amount at the job that he was at. And, you know, it was his first time touching Ruby and he was pretty appalled at the fact that you didn't have to use uh, parentheses when calling a method. And I mean, he was pretty uh, upset about, you know, just that. It, he said, well, how, how do you know whether it's just a variable or a method? Like, you can't, you can't tell. Or, you know, if you're calling it on an object, how do you know it's not an attribute? And, or, you know, how do you know it's a method and not an attribute if you don't have parentheses? And I basically say you don't really need to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've heard that from Python developers as well that have come to Ruby and looked at it. But I mean, you could say the same thing about you know significant white space in in the Python language. That's that seems pretty jarring to people who haven't experienced that before, right? Yeah, I mean, and on, at, at some level, whether you're calling a method or an attribute, either way, you're getting you're 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 just concerned about the return value. You know what I mean? And I guess if you're not getting what you're expecting and you have to dig in a little bit, I guess it would be helpful to know whether it's an, you know, like an attribute or uh, or a method that's being called. But I don't know. Honestly, I've never been, I've never had that feeling where I thought, oh man, this thing bit me because I didn't know whether it was an attribute or a method. Well, <laughs> some of us aren't as good as programmers as you, Ron. <laughs> Well, that's true. <laughs> I I think about it from the view of, you know, regardless of whatever, you know, level you want to slap me with, like I am the most recent, I was most recently a beginner. When I look at things and I'm like, would this be apparent to a beginner? Like we had a new contributor at Code Fund who wanted to learn Ruby and we were, I don't know, like if I was pairing with someone to help them learn Ruby and I was working in the Code Fund code base, I was like, would this be more confusing if it didn't have parentheses or if it did. And if it, if it, if the answer is it would be more confusing without parentheses, then I will always go with parentheses. But my threshold for like, this is confusing without parentheses versus Nate's is very different because of, you know, skill and experience. So like I said, yeah, I, it, I will opt for like protecting like the junior. Yeah. I mean, you could say the same thing with me and, and looking at the method definitions without parens. And, and other Ruby source where that I find that somewhat offensive, but maybe it's just because, you know, my comfort level with Ruby isn't, isn't that far along yet because these are guys that have been contributing from the very earliest days. Yeah. I think it comes down to a lot of just what you're used to, right? If you're used to seeing it one way uh, or, you know, if you're used to seeing code in general one way and then you're, suddenly thrust into a situation where it just looks unfamiliar, then it's confusing, right? Yep. 
for sure. So but, there was, uh, did you guys see the, the exploit and on Ruby gems from the, all the, the fake gym names, what do they call it? That's uh type of squatting. squatting. Yeah, I did. You want to tell us what, what was going on with that? Put it on the spot. So there were over 700 gems on Ruby gems that they identified that were what they called typo squatting. And typo squatting is basically taking, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced it with a website before where you type in, you know, like the website name you think it is, but it's like you do it slightly wrong. You make a typo and it takes you somewhere else instead. That's basically what was happening here. So instead of, they had a good example that I can't remember the name. Okay. Stimulus reflex. Stimulus reflex, the gem has an underscore in it. So it's stimulus underscore reflex. Typo squatting would be me creating a gem called stimulus dash reflex, which appeared to be the exact same thing, but it's not. And what they were essentially doing is they were creating, they had like an image inside of these gems, these like typo squatted gems that they had. And when you would run the gem, it would unpack like, the image into a Ruby file and then execute the Ruby file with like a base 64 encoded, like secure thing. It would basically try to steal like cryptocurrency and it would turn, it would create like an exe file. So this was only on windows computers, but yeah, I was going to ask if it was, if it was operating system specific. Yeah, it, it was windows specific because it would turn, it would try to create an exe file, which is a windows specific file. A Windows executable, if you if you were, if it were, and it sounds like they took care of that and and basically purged all of those malicious gems off of the platform. Yep, that is my understanding. But I mean, over seven hundred—that's a lot. I mean, if you think that, about it, yeah. that is a whole lot. Yeah, I mean that it's a ton, and like uh, we were lucky as a community that people were able to spot that and stop it. And I'm sure there's going to be some more guidelines. I don't know. I'm sure they're going to do something to help mitigate this from getting out of hand like that in the future. But yeah, I mean, this happens in every ecosystem. I mean, there's, I'm constantly hearing about, oh, well, you know, they, I, I, there was a few months ago and I don't remember if this was a, I feel like it was a Ruby package. It could have been a JavaScript one, but the maintainer gave control. The maintainer didn't have any more time to maintain whatever it was. So someone came along and they were like, hey, I'm willing to help you maintain this. So they gave the, the power to do that. And this person inserted you know, something along the similar lines, some code that was very hard to spot that would try to steal crypto from your computer. And I, I think this is, this is only going to be a growing problem and it's not you know, specific to a certain language. You know, People are trying to do this all the time. So I don't know. Yeah, I I'm going to see what they're going to do about it. I remember vaguely that story that you just referenced in the JavaScript world. But, you know, it brings up a good point in terms of, you know, the, a, a fair amount of effort is going into, you know, just maintaining the operational costs and, and tracking things like that down, watching for it, cleaning it up, all that kind of stuff. So to make sure, make sure you're out there supporting Ruby Central and Ruby Together and other services like that uh, in our community. Yeah, 100%. I think we've even said this on another show, like they... They do a lot and they're unpaid and if you can support them, you should. I know they have a store. I've bought things from their store before. I have a shirt that says every day we're bundling. I'm quite fond of it, but it doesn't really fit me anymore. Unfortunately, I need to get a new one. 
but yeah, if you can support Ruby Central and Ruby together, like you should. But that was that was really all with that. It was it's a it's a good reminder that you know maybe you you have like a gem in mind that you always add, but it's a good reminder that you know you need to be wary of these types of things and probably a good idea to double check before you just add a gem into your system. Yeah, hundred percent. Probably a little more from the like the just gem install like on the command line as opposed to a gem file, but but certainly worth paying extra attention in both cases. Yeah. So Nate, you've been doing a lot more managerial type tasks and have a lot more managerial type responsibilities at CodeFund recently. So I think you wanted to talk about the manager versus maker schedule, which I think we've at least brought up in the past, but we'll put a link to it. You want to talk about that and maybe give like a really brief overview of what manager's first maker schedule is? Oh, sure. I mean, essentially the, the, the manager's schedule is time sliced where you're, you're scheduling meetings. You block off 30 minutes here, 15 minutes there, an hour somewhere else throughout the day. And that's, that's typically how managers operate and, and people with more power in an organization often will operate that way. And the makers, for makers, that's a completely, it's, it's antithetical to that, that style of work because you need the creative time, you need the quiet time, you need the focus time where you can drop into deep work. So at a high level, that's what those two things are. And the only reason I wanted to touch on it was just to complain because I, I still have not adapted to manage your schedule. It is so difficult for me to time slice my day because so much of my career, my you know, 20 years I've been working on the maker schedule. And so I'm trying to, and that's not always been true, but for the most part it has. And just trying to, to get in into that flow where I don't feel like my day has been stolen from me, where everything is just scheduled for me and slotted on the calendar. And in, in, in such a way that even if I do have breaks in, in the middle of the day, I might have an hour here, an hour and a half there throughout the day, but it's not enough for me to drop into any significant deep work. And that's been incredibly frustrating on a personal level, but at the same time, that's not really where the organization needs me right now. And so I'm trying to balance that and, and, and find some happiness there. I really want to find a rhythm that's similar to how Basecamp describes they run their business because I know a lot of their managers actually still participate significantly on the on the on the maker side of the fence. And so I haven't I haven't quite figured out how to do that yet because I'm sitting in, I mean part of it's the nature of our business where there we have a lot of sales calls, a lot of demos and things like that. And I've needed to sit in on those. But maybe, maybe over time. I can block those off on a, on a particular day or a set of days or something like that, but, but we're not there yet. Well, I just want to say what you're doing is very honorable, taking one for the team. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people would look at it as, as an opportunity to kind of move up or advance in an organization. And, and that's not, I mean, I, I would definitely prefer to, to still be cutting code. That's where my, my passion and my heart really is. But, you know, we, gotta, we do what we got to do, right? Yeah, I've pretty much told every manager that I've had I do not envy you because yeah, I would I would hate that. That just yep. sounds awful. <laughs> yep. And I prior to leaving college, every job I'd had prior to that was as a manager. I managed pools, I managed the rec center at the college I went to. And when I 
when I decided to stop managing the campus rec center at college, that was when I kind of came to this point in my life where I was like, I'm not a great manager. I'm really not. I, I am not the, I'm not a people person and I wasn't, I didn't have a very good leadership style. My leadership style was like, do this, not, I don't know. I, I wasn't good at it. And I resolved pretty much at that time that I didn't want to be a manager pretty much going forward just because it, I didn't have a knack for it. And I had tried it and just been burned by it a lot and lost lots of friends, lost respect, lost, you know, this and that. But I was always such a hard worker that I looked, it looked good to other people who were above me because I was churning out so much productivity, but it was at the cost of, you know, everything else. So I resolved I didn't want to be a manager and I, I, I could not imagine doing it again. It's just not my forte, not my desire, not my strength. And you know what they say, you need, you should play to your strengths. And when I was like, good luck with Nate, because I, I couldn't do that. And I respect the hell out of people who can. Yeah. And I guess, let me add one slight modification. I would never want to manage at a software company or in a software position prior to doing this. I was working in a low voltage installation. And I was a manager um, at the last company that I was at before I switched to development, but it was, it was different. I was still doing, I was managing technicians, but I was still able to do technical work when I wanted to, or even actually when sometimes when I didn't want to, when it had to, you know, I had to get in there and be a technician myself because the company was so small. And, you know, sales meetings and putting jobs together, that was, that was okay. I actually liked doing all of that stuff. But some, for some reason, when it comes to every software job that I've had, the being in management just seemed like something I would never want to do, mainly because I feel like I wouldn't be able to, to actually code anymore. Most of the managers that I've had in software positions, they spend the majority of their time not coding. Yeah, the 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 job kind of shifts from from you know being being productive individually to just creating an environment where others can be productive. And also, having said that, like my role right now is not 100% management, right? It's it's kind of uh, setting strategy, or that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And and helping on the sales calls and training folks and things like that. And and interestingly enough, I, I do enjoy those things, but I'm also an introvert. And so my day, the other thing that I find is at the end of the day, after so many, you know, I may be sitting on eight calls in a given day and interacting with people essentially face-to-face through Zoom all day long, even with short breaks in between. But at the end of the day, I'm even more exhausted than I've than I would be if I were, you know, heads down with the earmuffs on or headphones on listening and, and just plugging away at, at hard problems. You know, some, some of those days you end and, and, and your brain just hurts because you've thought so hard about a problem and you, you're exhausted from that effort. But I'm finding like just the, the constant social interaction is even more draining for me. And that's just because I recharge, you know, during my alone time. And so I don't have any of that recharge time typically during, during my days currently. Although I'm working on ways to strategize 
changing that so so that I may have a, a few days reserved or mornings or afternoons or something like that. But I haven't I haven't quite managed to get there yet. But but I think I I'll, I'll get there eventually. Yeah, that's it's crazy how it works. You know, um, for introverts versus uh, extroverts, how spending a, an entire day just interacting with other people is more draining than spending the day working on a hard problem. Yeah. I, yes. Not only that, just I can't stand being on in meetings, especially meetings that I think like I don't need to be there for. And I've, I've had trouble with that for a long time, especially at the end of the meeting I was like, I didn't need to be here. Now I've wasted all this time. And as I've mentioned before, it takes me a lot longer to resituate after getting disrupted like that because I have ADHD and it's just, it throws a massive, massive wrench into everything because getting focused to do something is hard enough. And then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're focused on something and then you have to get pulled off of it and getting pulled, trying to get back into it. It's just, it's so difficult. Yeah. And people that, that haven't worked on that end of the equation kind of don't quite understand that level of deep work. And, but that's why the, the Paul Graham article about maker schedule, manager schedule is so helpful because you can, you can pass that off to folks that, that haven't experienced the, the really deep work, and which can be offensive if you tell them that, right? Because everybody thinks that they do some level of deep work, but it is different. Like the creative work of software development and programming is, is more akin to an author writing a book, I think, than, than anything. And you can't do that with you know, interruptions all throughout the process. Yeah. Makes you really sit back and respect the people that do it. I mean, at least from my point of view. I, I remember I saw an old product manager of mine that I used to work with at a get-together not too long ago. And I walked up to him and I was like, dude, I did not... I, I took you for granted when we worked together. And and I, I am sorry for that because now I, I realize, you know, what you did was incredibly hard. And I saw you as a constant obstacle to all the fun stuff I wanted to do. But really, you know, you were juggling all these things and being in all these meetings. And, you know, your job is, you know, in some ways a lot harder than mine. And I didn't, I was not mature enough to understand that when we worked together. Yeah, I think the main takeaway is that it's, it requires every role in a company, right? It's a, it's a team sport. and. And we have to support each other. So it's, it's often good to kind of bounce back and forth a little bit just to remember to appreciate those things and, and understand them at a, at a deeper level, right? Than just kind of get paying some lip service to it. Yes, but just so you know, I understand, right? So you don't need to bounce me anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> just, just watch your calendar. No, <laughs> I don't watch it though. I think he's up for a promotion. Yeah, there, I like that. but. If I have to talk to more people as a result of this promotion, I'd rather be demoted. <laughs> so the other day, Chris Oliver, the leader of the Go Rails community and also friend co-host, show. friend of the show, co-host of Remote Ruby, created a video on Simius Reflex as part of the Go Rails, I guess, set of videos you can get. And it has gotten, it is pretty popular. I've seen, I'm in the Go Rails community. I, I've seen a lot of chatter about it in the Slack group that they have. Oh, yeah. I, need, I need to jump in there. I, I keep saying I'm going to sign up. Chris invited me, but I haven't actually logged in yet. Yeah, Nate, I got you an invite. You didn't even have to sign up 
Virgo rats. Bad um, form, Nate. Bad form. Yeah, yeah. man. I, I stuck my neck out. <laughs> I've been in too many meetings. Yeah. <laughs> but since then, Simeus Reflex has gotten a lot more stars. There's a lot more people joining our Discord. And that is awesome. And it's also brought up some questions that Nate and I have talked about privately. But Nate, how do you feel that you have one of the more popular Ruby packages at this point. Yeah, I'd say at least, you know, currently in terms of rising in popularity, right? I've got mixed feelings about that. I'm very passionate about what the, you know, what Stimulus Reflex does and, and the, the type of thinking that it encourages about building modern reactive applications. But at the same time, I'm not sure that I'm ready to be like the, the community manager or community leader over you know a whole movement or, or a package like that so watching it rise in popularity is fun but i'm kind of ambivalent too because i know it comes with additional responsibility and you know care and concern for all the participants and, and more involvement and more time it's going to require more time for me to to manage it well so you know i'm a little worried about those things but at the same time it's pretty fun to watch i think the big takeaway here is is the power of influencer marketing so thanks to chris his his Intro video was really good. I don't know how many people have watched it, but it's it does a really fantastic job of kind of going over, at least touching on and, and giving you the high level view. Like this is what stimulus reflex is, and this is why you might want to use it. And here's what it can do. It was it was short and sweet and and pretty. It demonstrated the power of the library really well. I thought. Cool. Well, I just have one question about that, Nate. When are you buying your yacht? Yeah, if only if only GitHub stars translated to directly to uh, yachts or, or 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 cash or something. Hey, I mean they could they could translate to cash uh, if you had say you know some kind of code sponsor deal going on your. Uh, your <laughs> That's open a good idea. Project. You should copyright that immediately. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I've also got mixed feelings about that, right? Capitalizing on, on, on code fund to, to fund that project. But at the same time, it's, it's one of those things that is taking, you know, starting to take more and more of my personal time. So that's, uh, that's something I definitely should look at is getting code fund integrated onto our document site and our, our demo site and stuff like that. It would, it would certainly help. It'd be a little bit anyway. Yeah. I mean, this weekend there was, I, we have a code of conduct, which is great especially because it, I don't want to call it a situation, but there, there was some stuff happening in our discord and I looked at it and I was like, this isn't what, you know, Nate and I stand for. This isn't like if Nate saw this, like he wouldn't be really happy with it. Like we need to like come down on this type of behavior. And I was like, okay, but first off, I was very like, ugh, I don't want to deal with this. Like, this is not what I want to do. And I was like, this feels like drama and I don't want to, I'm very anti-drama, but I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, well, we have a code of conduct. So I can very clearly point to this this document that's in our read or in our code base and just be like, hey, you know, you're violating this rule. This is like your first warning. And that's been nice. The code of conduct discussions happened before I joined the community, like the Ruby community to begin with, but I don't understand why people are against them because it's generally like a very helpful thing because you do have people who will come in and be bad actors and you need to find a way to protect the rest of the people or have an example of like, no, we very clearly stated like in our code of conduct, this is 
first warning, second warning. Like this is what we're, this is what we define as bad behavior. This is what we're going to do about it. And I think it's just on, you know, the maintainers to make sure they're upholding that. And it's hard, especially, you know, depending on who's involved, but, you know, you got to protect the community. And that's something I've been thinking about is, you know, how do you, how do you not only foster a community, protect a community, but make sure that you're, you know, I don't know, there's some people you don't want to lose, but at the same time, if they're one of the bad actors, you're going to have to make a hard decision. Yeah. It actually kind of reminds me like why have a code of conduct reminds me of a, this this conversation around you know managerless organizations or flat organizations and there was a paper written it's been several years now back that talked about the tyranny of structurelessness essentially like the tyranny of a flat org because humans like we 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 form those hierarchical structures regardless of whether or not we declare the organization being flat or not and and so establishing some degree of org structure is really helpful. And a code of conduct kind of facilitates that, right? If, if you've got those rules, uh, hard rules, you can point back to and say, Hey, that this is, this is, this is the guideline that we've established for how we all interact with one another. Then we can point back to it and say, that's, that's the structure that's in place rather than some uh, implicit, you know, friendships or hierarchy that may have formed irrespective. So it kind of, it's similar. It's an interesting, at least an interesting thought. That's what I was thinking of as you were describing those things. Yeah. And I've, I, I know people who, like I was talking about a code of conduct the other day and then I saw someone who followed me say something like, uh, I roll my eyes every time I see something, someone talking about a code of conduct. And I'm like, I just don't understand that behavior. Like to me, the people who are trying to say we don't need codes of conduct are people who are more likely to be breaching them. It's like, why, why do you care so much that there is like a defined list of things that like we just won't tolerate in this community? So, like I said, I wasn't around for all those arguments for or against it. I've seen threads about it. I've read back through the history. I've seen horrible, horrible discussions about it. I'm just like, like these are adults talking and they're talking like children. And I'm like, it's just dis- like disgusting behavior. And I'm like, this is why you need that. I'm like, because these people have no place in the community and they're just, you know, y- you don't want to support that because they're going to, not only are they going to hurt the image of the project, they're going to potentially hurt whether mentally, let's say mental, they're going to potentially hurt other people in the community. And you need as the project maintainer, the code of conduct gives you a, a position to be like, hey, you can't do that. Here's exactly where we define that you can't do that. So you're not just arbitrarily making up rules as you see fit. It's like, this is your warning because we have consequences and here they're laid out. And like, we don't, this is not a place for you to be exhibiting that behavior. Yeah, 100%. I think, I think the code of conduct is, is a wonderful advancement in open source. So I'm glad to see that uh, that more projects are adopting them. Well, is there anything else you guys had on your minds that you want to talk about today? No, I think we're good. Yeah. Yeah. I think we covered all the bases today. Cool. Oh, I have, I actually, I just remembered something. So I have a PR. Okay. That has migrations in it. That PR is still sitting on master or sitting like in the PR 
you know, been waiting for review, cough, cough, Nate. And since then, there have been a few PRs that have emerged that have migrations in them. So I've been trying to keep this PR up to date, but now there are migrations in the system that are, you know, the date is after these migrations. And I went back and tried to rebase and keep it up to date, but I think I have kind of failed and I need to do something because now I can't, like I tried to merge it or I tried to like, you know, migrate the database, update the PR to be one-to-one with master and then roll back the changes so that I could go back to working on the other things I'm working on. And I can't roll back the changes anymore because I get like some weird error about the migration date not existing or this or that. So basically the migration has fallen out of like, it's no longer like the next migration that's going to get added the next DB change. So how do you guys typically, what would you guys do? Because my first thought in pure laziness was like, all right, I'll just, I'll destroy this branch, create a new PR and then just cherry pick everything over and create new migrations so that they do fall next in line. And my other thought was I'll just remove the migrations in the PR, create new ones. So once again, they fall in line. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm actually surprised that you're having a problem with that because Rails should be smart enough because what it does in the schema migrations table is it just puts the timestamp of the migration. All the migrations that have been executed have a record or an entry in that table. And so even even if they're out of order, it should be smart enough to handle uh, fresh migrates. I wonder if it's because you've been bouncing back and forth between branches with multiple different migrations. Well, I think what actually happened is that a, I tried to update it with master and something went wrong. I think it had a bad rebase. Oh, yeah. That's probably more likely than it was Rails. So I, like I would leave the migration timestamp the same, pull down a fresh copy of, of master and then see if you can merge master to your branch and maybe, maybe without a rebase. I don't know if that'd be any easier. And then make, grab a fresh snapshot of you know, the production schema structure and then rerun the migrations again. What about yeah, you, that Ron? makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I pulled down a fresh copy because I kind of started thinking about that, but I don't know. I'm trending toward the nuclear option because I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, it's, it's, I've continued to rebase. And when you're rebasing the schema or the schemas like has merge conflicts and the structure.sql file has, you know, is, has merge conflicts and, yeah, you know, it's just becoming like a nightmare. And I know for a fact that now there is an issue. But hmm. yeah, nuke it all, start over. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> if you're burning too much time, yeah. I I mean you could do that. The the one thing that I typically don't worry about are any of those auto-generated files. Oftentimes I'll just pull up the merge tool and I'll even leave like the the artifacts, the the conflict artifacts in the files themselves and then just regenerate them and then commit commit the the regenerated files well i will i'll have to figure i'll have to do that figure this out but it wouldn't be a problem <laughs> i got some code review you know what? <laughs> i might actually have a little bit of time this afternoon to do it i have to, I have to go check the inbox see that i have to worry about things like inbox zero now i actually have to check my email oh, Ooh, oh no. ouch ah <laughs> hey, and uh, CodeFund is open source, right? So that means that I could uh, review your PR? Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Ron. 
<laughs> no problem. Yeah, now we're we're all set. I mean, it got one approval, and I'm just I'm nervous about this change. Probably for no good reason. I probably could have just merged it after Eric approved it, but for some reason, it is sticking out in my mind as something I would like Nate to look at, and maybe for no good reason. But enough of like a feeling, you know, you have that bad feeling in your head and you're just like, eh, maybe I'm forgetting something like it, it, it deals with stuff that I have not worked a lot with and I didn't build and I'm not as familiar with. I'm just, you know, there's something in the back of my head that's like, well, what if there's something somewhere that you have no idea about that could really screw it? Like this is something that could screw things up if not done correctly. So uh, probably needless paranoia. That's that's good. I like to see that paranoia. Oh, great! <laughs> Throw out all those years of therapy. Nate likes the paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, but cool. If we don't have anything else, I think we I think we can wrap this one up. Sounds good. We'll see you next time. See right. you. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode, with 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia. Enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.